Welcome to this edition of the Journal of Neuro-Ophthalmology podcast. This is Dr. Prem Subramanian, the online content editor for the journal, and I'm joined today by Dr. Joseph Rizzo, who is professor of ophthalmology and neurology at the Harvard Medical School. He'll be speaking with us today about his recent article in the journal on the Boston Retinal Implant Project and retinal prostheses in general. Dr. Rizzo is the director of the Boston Retinal Implant Project. Joe, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. And I'll start by asking you about the practical limits of vision restoration through a retinal approach. It seems that there might be a huge technical issue in getting past the 250 to 300 electrode arrays that you and others are creating, or is it just a matter of scaling things up from there? Good question, but a hard one to answer. So the initial question about what the practical limits would be, no one knows yet. And part of the problem is that one can't begin to judge the potential of a particular device until it's developed and implanted and you begin to work with the patient to try to figure out how to best utilize the device that you've just built. So the field is always going to be uh, pinned at whatever technical level exists at that time for a particular group. So we can define the results uh, that have been published so far. All groups that are involved in this work are trying to improve on their devices. And it's more likely than not that the visual results will be better with future devices. <clears throat> you ask about the two to 300 electrode limit. So that limit is mostly governed by this so-called hermetic feed-through technology. The computer chips have to be embedded inside of a titanium case or some other hermetic enclosure. But to stimulate the retina, you have to come out of that case. And those are called hermetic feed-through vias. And the field of visual prosthetics is pushing the limit way beyond any other neural implant. And our group and others are working on new strategies. And uh, how we compare to other groups is hard to judge because this, that type of work is very proprietary. You've mentioned hermeticity in what you were just describing. And from reading your article, it seems like that may be the biggest long-term challenge, creating a durable implantable device. I know you mentioned some of these issues are proprietary, but how is your approach different from that taken by others who are creating such devices? You know, again, it's really hard to know because um, one can learn about the general design concepts from any group based upon their talks, but the, the subtleties that really define success um, are not possible to come by typically, um, at least well enough to compare in detail. So our uh, hermetic strategy is in some ways similar to second sites, although we're using a different type of encapsulate material and a different type of hermetic feed-through approach than they are. But both approaches are very plausible, and potentially uh, each approach could be successful in its own right. The one device that is fundamentally different from our device and from the second site device is the device made by Dr. Zrenner in Tübingen, Germany. Uh, theirs is a photodiode-based device in order for the device to stimulate at a particular place on the retina, it needs to receive the incoming light signals. Therefore, you can't have those photodiode arrays embedded within a titanium case. They have to be able to capture the incident light. So his hermetic encapsulation problem is fundamentally different from groups like ours that don't use a photodiode array-based device. It seems that uh, resolution and motion perception are obviously independent but related issues that you want the patient to be able to perceive. 
And have you found one or the other to be more difficult to produce or to be perceived by your research subjects who are using this device? So our device has yet to be chronically implanted in a human, so I can't answer that question for my group in particular, but I can reflect upon the kind of results that have been reported by other groups, and we, we do pay a lot of attention to those. So I think the best way to approach that answer is to um, recognize that, in general, for normally sighted patients, motion is a stronger drive for a visual response than a static image, in general. So I think it's also going to be true for visual prosthetics that motion that's con motion information that's conveyed through the retina from an electrical stimulus is likely to alert the patient of some activity and that that would probably be easier than providing spatial resolution. In the big picture, I think that's probably true. So they are such different visual faculties that it's a little hard to compare the two. And the kind of device that one would develop to detect motion versus spatial detail is different in some ways. So um, I view these as being sort of parallel goals psychophysically, <clears throat> and both are important. The ideal situation would be to build a device that operates something like the normal human retina, which is that if we detect motion in our periphery, we then turn our eye to foveate on the target where we have much greater spatial resolution. Uh, and of course, a visual prosthetic device will never provide that level of spatial resolution. I mean, I think that's not going to happen, at least not for a very, very long time. But I think the idea of uh, patients being able to sense that something is in their peripheral field and then turn their eyes and perhaps be able to acquire more spatially detailed perceptions is likely to occur with visual prosthetic devices. As you see it right now, is that perhaps more of a software or a hardware problem or probably both together? <laughs> That's a good question. And it is both. Um, you know, these are, we, we tend to speak of um, retinal prosthetic devices as being a description of a particular device itself. We often speak in terms of how many electrode arrays, for instance, or how many electrodes are in a particular device. But these devices are actually, they're systems. So ours is a camera-based system. There is visual processing that occurs external to the body, and then a wireless transmission of the processed signal. So you can see already that the ability to detect motion, for instance, would depend to some extent upon the method that one uses to process the visual information before the signal is even sent to the person. And of course, it's also true that the number and size and perhaps the location of the electrodes will also influence the ability to detect motion. So it's a systems level issue. It involves both hardware and software and the methods used for visual processing. Joe, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. This is, I know, a project that has consumed your activities for years and it's really incredible to see how far it's come over this time. Thank you very hey. much. Thank you very much. I'm appreciative uh, for having been able to publish the article in JNO and also to be able to uh, spend some time with you this morning, Prem. This podcast represents the copyrighted content of the North American Neuro-Ophthalmology Society. 
All views expressed in this podcast represent the opinions of the participants. It does not necessarily reflect the views of NANOS. To find out more about NANOS and its journal, the Journal of Neuro-Ophthalmology, please visit www.nanosweb.org.